This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Christy Schreiber, and we're here to discuss books that have changed the world and have changed us. And I'm Gary Schreiber, and this is the How to Love It podcast. This week, we are going in a totally different direction. I mean, literally and figuratively. We're doing something we've never done before, but it was inspired by Tolkien's love of mythology and genealogy and his fondness for names and the, the combination of all those things put together. We're going to spend this week talking about one of the most enchanting and remote places on Earth, the islands of Hawaii. Uh, Christy, from a historical perspective, Hawaii's history is fascinating and in some ways a a micro-expression of a lot of what has happened all over the world. And um, It's a place of immense beauty, uh, incredible tragedy, a place where people have been exploited uh, and brutalized, but also a place that that starts and ends every conversation with a greeting of love, which is... Aloha! (laughs) Um, I went there for the first time years ago and lived there for a short while. As a teacher, I was on summer break and I spent nearly every day in the sun with my beautiful three-year-old daughter, Emily. Uh, We played on the sand and we watched the surfers and mostly just soaking it in and the sounds and the smells of a place that could not have been more of a contrast with the Midwest <laughs> where I was born or Memphis. And uh, I'd hardly ever flown on an airplane up to that point in my life. And uh, it was also the only time in my life that I ever had a tan that I could be proud of. <laughs> I'm one of those people that can't tan. But anyway, I was mesmerized oh. by Hawaii. Well, uh, haven't we all? I mean, I was always enchanted by it as well, even though I'd never been. I remember my grandparents went there when they had their 50th anniversary. And my grandmother, now this is a woman who married my grandfather when she was 15, never went to high school, worked for the telephone company all of her life. Very simple. But she came back gushing from Hawaii, talking about the beauty, the magic, meeting Tom Selleck. But that's a different story. (laughs) Today, though, we want to talk about the stories that make up this amazing place. 
We also want to put Hawaii into the larger context of the Polynesian Islands. It's part of the United States as a state, but that's really only part of its recent history. The history of Hawaii is rich and it's old. Its language and culture are deep and they're charming and they're connected really to a much larger story. If you go to Hawaii, one of the must-dos is you need to participate in a luau. It may feel like a touristy thing to do, but it's really more than that. It's a story. The luau started in 1819 when King Kamehameha II ended the taboo system that forbade men and women from eating together. It's a feast. There's music and food and hula dancing and stories. It could be private, like a personal celebration of a rite of passage, but it can also be large, the story of an island itself. So today, we are going to look at the stories of Hawaii, a couple of ancient myths, a true story that's morphed kind of into a myth, but then we're going to end with the inspirational true story of a great inspirational woman Queen Liluakalani, and her legacy lives and is most definitely not a myth, as we understand that word, but an enduring fact. Sound like we have a lot to get through, including pronunciations. <laughs> I know. I'm, it's going to be a struggle, and it may be too much, but let's see how it goes. So let's start with the big picture. What is Polynesia? We know that Hawaii is a Polynesian island, but what does that mean? It's certainly not one place, so dispel that myth. If pardon the pun. <laughs> the word poly means many, and there are over 1,000 islands scattered over 800,000 square miles. Oh, Lord. What is interesting is that even though there are many different indigenous people that live really separately on these different islands, uh, there are actually many things they have in common, including their DNA. So Really? Th- yeah. When James Cook first landed in Hawaii, one of the things that shocked him was that uh, the language of the Hawaiians shared cognates with languages used in other islands thousands of miles away. Uh, of course, he thought he was a discoverer, an explorer, and, and he was in the sense that he was discovering and exploring what he didn't know. But he was not uncovering something formerly unknown <laughs> or unconnected. I mean, there were connections of language and of culture and of religion that were far-reaching all over that region. And the Polynesian islands of Hawaii make up a triangle, and Hawaii is at the top of the triangle, and Easter Island off the coast of uh, Chile makes up one end of the triangle, and New Zealand is the third point of the triangle. That is one large triangle. <laughs> yeah. Well, like we said, 800,000 square miles. So uh, if you can imagine just a uh, gigantic triangle across the Pacific Ocean, that is Polynesia. And uh, if we look at a globe instead of a map, we can see just how much space that covers. And in fact, it's actually incredible to think that well before uh, the Vikings and the Europeans were making ships to cross the Atlantic, Polynesians had already developed a technology to travel over thousands of miles of water. And they were doing it for thousands of years using the stars and even the ocean currents. I mean, um, that's a very interesting story in and of itself, but that would have to be a whole separate podcast. <laughs> Yeah, I guess so. Well, we have to mention Disney because certainly Disney cashed in on the story of Polynesia, although I'm embarrassed to say I, I haven't watched it. I know it's popular, but I quit watching cartoons with my yes, girls. You don't like animation. I know. I don't know what my problem is. And I was going to do it before the podcast, but I haven't yet. So I, But I did do the second best thing. I Googled it. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I wanted to know, really, 
how well received the movie version was to people who love Polynesia and were, you know, experts in the culture and were invested in the culture. And unsurprisingly, you know, there's mixed reviews. People like it, some don't. On the plus side, uh, Disney picked a good name for the heroines. So her name is Moana, and the word Moana means ocean. Now, for Hawaiians, uh, not just Hawaiians, but certainly for Hawaiians, the ocean is not something that divides the world, but something that connects it, which I thought was interesting and how a perspective that you would have if you live on an island. So Moana is a nice choice for a name of a protagonist. Now, one inaccuracy that annoys people has to do with the demigod called Maui. In Disney's version, Maui is an orphan. And although there are 20-something slightly different versions of the Maui stories because each island has its own kind of twist on it, None of them have an orphan. Mm. Hawaii, in the Hawaiian tradition, Maui has four brothers. And the Maui stories are very important and are one of the links that uh, lets modern people know how connected culturally all these Polynesian islands were because they share a lot of these stories, which if you think about the space and the water in between these places, seems technologically impossible thousands of years ago. Uh, but then again, it happens. So what can we say? Another point of annoyance is that there's no henna in the movie. <laughs> Who is that? A goddess. Maui is just a demigod. In most of the stories that involve Maui, henna is there. Uh, but she's a god that's connected to him in different ways. Sometimes she's his wife. Sometimes she's his sister. Sometimes she's his mother, depending on the version of the love legend but it doesn't matter she's a powerful female deity why would you want to cut her out huh. <laughs> i'm sure you would not have done so uh, had you been a disney executive uh, no. in charge. did you really read that a lot of people are upset she's not in the movie or is that your opinion no i read that <laughs> that's a oh, real thing real, <laughs> all right so let's get to the legend of maui there are lots of myths we could talk about um some of them may be more important than the ones we're going to tell but Maui is the most recognizable name of Polynesian legends, and I know that's a lot because of the movie, but there's an island name at Maui. So first of all, the Hawaiian word mo'olelo can be translated, and I think this is important to notice. It can be translated, so the mo'olelo is a legend, a story, or a history. And that's a place to start, because when we talk about, you know, histories, myths, and legends, in general, it's interesting that the Hawaiians don't make a distinction between those uh, three things. They intermingle. And this is something that Tolkien also talked about. Myths can be true. Histories may be legends. You know, who's can, to say? Can we say archetypal <laughs> even? Maybe so. You know, no, But I, he, they would even take it a little bit farther than that. Well, I want to point out, uh, and, and I'll point it out very specifically later in the podcast, but but history and myth intermingle in all cultures and with all peoples. And so we just don't highlight uh, that the way the Hawaiian language does. True. And I think it's interesting also uh, for the Hawaiians that it's very important uh, how these stories are told or remembered. There were specific, highly trained, highly skilled individuals that were tasked at remembering the tales for the purpose that they would stay authentic and intact, you know, throughout the centuries, throughout the millennials. 
Uh, the Hawaiian people are called Kanaka Maoli, and they have an incredibly strong oral tradition, even to this day. In fact, it was mostly oral all through their history. The Hawaiian language did not have a written alphabet until 1826, when Christian missionaries created an alphabet for the Hawaiian language and then went on to develop a written form of the language after that. So that's, you know, really late. Uh, doing that is something that's gotten mixed reviews from historians and cultural critics as time has passed and print culture uh, as well as missionary influence. And next week we will um, introduce Chinua Achebe and things fall apart. And I wanted to get into a little more about the controversy of uh, Christian missionaries and local cultures because in Africa, that is a large part of the narrative. But in Hawaii, the Christian influence has been, um, you know, although checkered at times, more well-received by the indigenous people. And definitely not the most controversial part of the story that we are going to tell today. Uh, however, we're getting ahead of ourselves, so let's go back in time to Maui. Okay. Well, Maui's myths. One version of his story goes like this. And these are just, you know, small stories, but they're things that have stayed around for a long time. One day, Maui realized that people were being held down by the sky. They couldn't stand up. The sky had flattened leaves and was keeping plants and trees from growing, and people were suffering. So he realized he had to help. So he visits a kahuna, and a kahuna is a Hawaiian priest or healer. So the kahuna tattoos Maui with a magical symbol on his forearm, and this gives him great powers. He also went to a kapuna, which is an elder, and she gave him a drink for her gourd. Now, this gives him his superpowers, and he becomes supernaturally strong to the point that he is able to push the sky above the mountains where you can see it today. <laughs> That's powerful. It is powerful. Well, let me tell you another one, because this one involves henna. I told you, you can't, you can't leave her out. So in, in the Hawaiian version, henna is Maui's mother, and she complains that her kappa cloth doesn't have time to dry because the days are too short. So Maui climbs up to the top of Haleakala Volcano and waits at the top for the sun to rise. Then he uses a magical lasso made from his sister's hair, and he snares the sun's rays. By doing this, he is able to get the sun to agree to slow its pace across the sky, and this results in a longer growing season. <laughs> there you go. Once again, very powerful. Here's another one. This is maybe the most widely known. So one day, Maui pulls up the Hawaiian Islands. By tricking his brothers into paddling their canoes with all their might to haul up each island. He then goes on to hook them using a magical and you know great fish hook that he calls the Manaya Kalani. The brothers thought they were pulling up massive fish, but really they were pulling up the Hawaiian islands themselves. Oh my, a little bit of a mistake. <laughs> I know. The stories are fun. They're short. There's a lot of them. But they do have some commonalities if you look at kind of their literary styles that make them somewhat distinctive. You'll see that all of them glorify the hero of the tale because in Polynesian cultures, they're very centered around the chief. And so the chief is going to be somebody that you're going 
to glorify. These are not democratic peoples. Uh, also, the myths use a lot of hyperbole. There's a lot of metaphor. We're going to enhance the deeds. We're going to enhance the attractiveness of, of the of the protagonist. There's a lot of names. Names are very important. And I didn't emphasize this because it's harder for me to say, and we kind of <laughs> get lost in them. But names are very important in these cultures. Also, things like rocks and valleys in the sun are anthropomorphized. In other words, like we saw with the sun in this story, the sun is a character, and that happens a lot. Nature is in character, and nature engages the characters in the myths. Well, I mean, there are some things that cross over with Greek myths that we're more familiar with, but some that are unique, definitely. Oh, for sure. Uh, well, before we leave Maui and the ancient myths, I think we should share the one where he discovers fire. Oh, yeah. Okay, so Maui is out fishing one day with his brothers. You know, they do that a lot. And he sees a very small plume of white smoke. So he goes over to see what it is, and he discovers a hen. And the hen is stamping out and trying to hide what is fire. Maui hides, and he watches the hen start another fire. The next day, the hen goes out to make her fire, but then she sees that Maui didn't go in the canoe with his brothers, so she doesn't make the fire. Maui realizes that this hen is on to him, so to trick the hen, the next day he puts a large human-shaped thing in the canoe to make the hen think that he's gone out, and it works. So the hen makes the fire, rubbing limbs together. Maui jumps out, grabs the hen by the neck, and demands to be taught, how do you make this fire? Well, at first, the hen lies to him, and she tells him to rub water plants together. But eventually, you know, she was persuaded by his <laughs> threats. Yes. Uh, she shows him how to rub dry sticks together. Maui, as punishment for lying to him, burns the crest of the top of the bird's head. And that's why the adult, I do, I, I have a hard time saying this hen name, but Alayaula, or Hawaiian hen, has a red crest. Well, there you go. <laughs> so let's uh, transition from ancient myths and go to more modern ones. And uh, this is where the Hawaiians are onto something by using the same word, for myth and history, uh, at the point where I was making earlier, the next story I want to share is not a myth, but something that actually happened. But over the years, because of how we record history or how it gets misinterpreted, the events have been exaggerated, uh, not too differently than the Maui stories, really. Uh, so on January 19th, 1778, the Hawaiians welcomed a British explorer, Captain James Cook, and he's considered the first European uh, to ever visit the islands. Although that's not undisputed. I mean, I've mentioned him before. He's a very famous person in British history during that time period. Uh, he sailed all over the world and up and down the coast of Canada. Three expeditions into the Pacific Islands into Antarctica. I wonder which one he preferred. <laughs> I don't think that leaves much to question. Yeah. I know is the sailors did not prefer uh, Antarctica over the Hawaiian Islands. <laughs> Well, he was very successful in terms of what he was setting out to do and the things he was learning about the world uh, made a huge impact back in his home country. And uh, he was disciplined with his crew 
he kept them alive by keeping an eye on their behaviors and their diets, and uh, that made him pretty successful. <laughs> that must be hard, too. But one reason history remembers him so well is the same reason we remember Florence, Italy, so well. We talked about this during the Machiavelli episodes. Um, Cook kept copious records and detailed records, not just about what happened, but what he was learning. Um, he recorded scientific discoveries and cultural discoveries and language discoveries and lots of things that were new to Europeans. Um, and as I've said before, history belongs to those who want to record it. <laughs> that seems obvious. Right. Uh, so since we have so much written history by him, he gets to frame a lot of the account and a lot of the record. What we know about that encounter was uh, written down eventually by both native Hawaiians as well as in the record log of Captain Cook himself. You mean the encounter of Hawa- the Hawaiians and Captain... Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, however, even though there is some direct record um, over the years, the narrative of the events that took place has evolved based on people's interpretations afterwards. And um, many will argue they were mythologized, uh, likely inaccurately for... All kinds of different reasons. So in, in some form or fashion, the long and short of it, Captain Cook showed up and a circumstance would have it. It was during a holiday event where local islanders were celebrating the Polynesian god Lono. Lono is one of the four gods in Hawaiian mythology. And ironically, he is the god of peace and agriculture. Well, let's point out that that's different from Maui because Maui wasn't a god. He was just a, a demigod. A part-timer. Yeah. <laughs> Well, in the mythologized version, uh, which really was accepted as fact for many years, the locals believed that Captain Cook was the god Lono and treated him like a god because he arrived during the celebration in a sacred bay dedicated to Lono. And uh, apparently the ship was well received and they had a wonderful time with the natives and uh, some of these activities introducing diseases to the island. Well, again, that's another story. For another <laughs> I podcast. got it. Yeah. But they stayed a month before leaving to hunt for the Northwest Passage, as many people did during that day. And uh, the part that historians have come to question over the years um, is if the locals really thought it was a god, or is it just something that has grown out of the story because of cultural misunderstandings of what was going on and what was being said. And uh, We know the Hawaiians were impressed with some of uh, his iron because Cook mentioned it in his log. Uh, They recognized it. He made uh, note of it because they had seen it before, which struck him. Is there enough evidence to support the whole God thing? Well, there is some, but it's not clear cut and it's really not the end of the story. And uh, Captain Cook and his crew leave Kealakalua Bay, but unfortunately, they get into a storm and have to come back because their ship, the Resolution, is messed up. Uh, this time when they come back into the bay, there's a brawl of some sorts for reasons that are not entirely clear. And Captain Cook was actually killed in the altercation. Oh, my. As well as 30 or more Hawaiians. And now, uh, the part of the original versions that has been questioned over the years as to why Captain Cook was killed. And the original story states that the Hawaiians realize he's not a god and kill him for that because in the Lono myth, he's not supposed to come back. But honestly, you know, more recent scholarship uh, that reads the firsthand accounts, both of Cook and Hawaiians, who later recorded the story, uh, tell a story that's a lot less dramatic and more humanized and actually even may be more accidental. And, of course, what actually happened, we will never know for sure. But Captain Cook's name is heavily associated with the history of Hawaii, um, especially as it begins to interact with the Western colonizing world. 
In fact, when we in the podcast read an introduction to a translation of a Hawaiian ancient text, Captain Cook's name in that story is actually mentioned. Oh, wow. So why did the story become fact that the native Hawaiians thought Cook was a god? I mean, why did that even have a thing, was a thing to begin with? Well, I mean, that kind of thing is interesting, uh, at least for us who are interested in how history is actually recorded. Uh, we believe because that is how a Hawaiian named Kamakaua wrote his history in 1866. Well, if he wrote it and he's Hawaiian, that seems definite and clear cut. <laughs> no. Apparently, you don't know much about history. You laughed. <laughs> I did. Uh, it's not clear cut. The events happened in 1778, and that's 88 years previously. And uh, Kamakua wasn't a witness. And so um, he was recording in written form what had been passed down orally. And what we have just learned from the reading, the Maui legends, is that Hawaiians often use hyperbole, like you do, when describing <laughs> the chief in their oral tradition. But in my stories, I'm the chief. <laughs> that hints the hyperbole. Uh, they also use a lot of metaphors, and that's super cultural to them. If Hawaiian used the word lono to describe Cook later, it's possible that it was a comparison, like what they were thinking when he showed up, not a literal interpretation. And also, as the leaders of the Hawaiians spoke to Cook, isn't it likely that they would have used flattery in order to get what they wanted? Um, they may have called him Lono. Uh, the person who told the story heard it as such, but it wasn't because the chiefs thought that it was who they were actually talking to. And we know for a fact that Cook gave them a knife during their first meeting. So there are many possible explanations to the encounter. It's just one of the many problems historians have. And so that's why I say making the word myth and history the same uh, is in some sense, it's likely a, a smart thing to do. And uh, that way, everyone knows that some things are potentially questionable or at least open to uh, multiple interpretations. Well, I want to end with a story that's interesting, but not a good story to end with. I want to end with one that's very documented about a real person. I know Captain Cook was a real person. But this person, inarguably, is a great American hero, although she wasn't really American by her own choice. Queen Lilio Kalani. Uh, as a little girl, they called her Lydia. She was born September 2, 1838, attended missionary schools, and was very highly educated. But notice that she was born in 1838. That's only 60 years after Cook showed up in Hawaii for the first time. That's not a very long time. No, it isn't. Um, and how she became the queen of Hawaii is interesting in itself. I mean, uh, genealogy and names are such an important part of Hawaiian culture, but um, that's a story for another day. We've said that several times. Because <laughs> there's so many stories. There are. Long story short, she became queen after her brother died, and she was the heir apparent. And this, again, will show you how uh, inglorious history is. Um, Hawaii, after being discovered by Westerners, quickly became a popular spot in the Pacific it was geographically in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. The weather was perfect. Uh, growing conditions were perfect. And so, obviously, financial interest, specifically American financial interest, saw an opportunity to grow sugarcane, among other things, and pineapples and stuff like that. And so, long story short, this happened not too long um, before Queen Kalani began her reign. Her brother, King David Kalakaua, signed what today we would call the Bayonet Constitution, 
which basically limited the power of the monarchy and disenfranchised the native population. Well, if he's the king, why would he disenfranchise his own people? Well, he did it because the businessmen on the island literally forced him to at gunpoint. That's why it's called the Bayonet Constitution. (laughs) Oh, that's persuasive. Yes, and the Constitution linked voting rights to land ownership, which cut out local people who didn't own land and allowed non-native immigrants to vote just because they did. And when Queen Liliuokalani became queen, uh, her first order of business was to amend the bogus constitution, restore her own power, and reenfranchise the native Hawaiians, local businessmen that were afraid of the influence of the queen and how it would affect business basically conspired with the American media oh, no. industries of their day to use their influence to run a disinformation campaign about what was happening in Hawaii. And they villainized her and they got the House of Representatives in the United States to get involved. And they were able to bring in the U.S. Marines to force Queen Lilu Kalani to surrender the Hawaiian kingdom to the United States in 1893. And ironically, the person who was proclaimed the president of the Republic of Hawaii was a man by the name of I don't know. (laughs) Sanford B. Dole, as in Dole Pineapples. Well, that's probably not a coincidence. Uh, Exactly. It is not. He was the son of the most influential businessman on the island. Well, it is a terrible story. And Queen Liliokalani was imprisoned for eight months at the Yolani Palace. And you can visit the palace to this day. There were very dark days, even though you say, well, she's in a palace. Well, she's locked in her room. And she had no assurances that she would ever be released, which she was after eight months, and she still continued to advocate. She actually went to Washington, D.C. to speak with the president, uh, first with President Cleveland. Uh, She held a reception for reporters and then members of Congress and their families. She also attended, because of the timeline, the inauguration of President McKinley. And after that, she made a formal appeal to the U.S. government for her people. Let's read her words. I declare such treaty to be an act of wrong toward the native and part native people of Hawaii, an invasion of the rights of the ruling chiefs in violation of international rights, both toward my people and toward friendly nations with whom they have made treaties. The perpetuation of the fraud whereby the constitutional government was overthrown and finally an act of gross injustice to me. Because the official protest made by me on the 17th day of January, 1893, to the so-called provisional government was signed by me and received by said government with the assurance that the case was referred to the United States of America for arbitration. Because that protest and my communications to the United States government immediately thereafter expressly declare that I yielded my authority to the forces of the United States in order to avoid bloodshed, and because I recognized the futility of a conflict with so formidable a power. Because the President of the United States, the Secretary of State, and an envoy commissioned by them reported in official documents that my government was unlawfully coerced by the forces, diplomatic and naval, of the United States, and that I was, at that date of their investigations, the constitutional ruler of my people. Therefore, I, Lilia Kalani of Hawaii, do hereby call upon the president of that nation, to whom alone I yielded my property and my authority, to withdraw said treaty 
ceding said islands from further consideration. I ask the Honorable Senate of the United States to decline to ratify said treaty, and I implore the people of this great and good nation from whom my ancestors learned a Christian religion to sustain the representatives in such acts of justice and equity as may be in accord with the principles of their fathers. And to the almighty ruler of the universe, to him who judges righteously, I commit my cause. Done at Washington, District of Columbia, United States of America, the 17th day of June in the year 1897. Signed, Lilio Kalani. Why would have voted for it? For her. <laughs> But it just wasn't ever going to happen. I mean, all of world history, not just American history, world history is full of these kinds of stories of conflicts. And in 1898, William McKinley, unsurprisingly, signed into law a joint resolution of Congress to annex Hawaii to the United States, although the legality of doing something like that is obviously disputed even to this day. They're just a few weeks later before... Queen Lilakalani was going to turn 60 years old. She would never be queen again. On Queen Lilakalani's 73rd birthday, she gave a birthday present to her people. She had her trustees set apart a piece of property and created the Lilakalani Garden. And then when she died, in her will, she, cre- she didn't have any children. She created an estate to provide for the orphan children of of Hawaiian blood. It's since been amended to include other races uh, of anyone, of all orphans uh, in Hawaii. So her legacy lives through the ongoing Lilukalani Trust, which is active to this day. Well, her story is so intermingled with the story of Hawaii, uh, which is shocking when you're looking back on it, but it's also encouraging on a personal level. Uh, She didn't win her battle, but she never stopped advocating for her people and the ones that she loved. And in spite of all that, was so discouraging losing her her country. She still made her life count in a significant way and has improved the lives of many years after her death. Well, and she also left an important literary legacy. And that's the last thing I want us to talk about. There's a couple of things that she did. While she was locked up and imprisoned in the, the palace, she used her time to do two things. The first thing she did was she made a quilt. Now, a quilt is a very important Hawaiian tradition, but in her case, she just wasn't making a piece of art. She wanted to make an important political document. She wanted to document the overthrow of her government, and you can see that quilt today in the Bishop Museum there in Honolulu. And, of course, uh, in 1894, when the Hawaiian flag came down and the American flag went up, many people began making quilts out of the Hawaiian flag um, as a form of protest. And uh, often they would hide them under their beds, but they had them and they wanted to remember the monarchy. I mean, I would think that would be true. My goodness, I can't even imagine. And the second thing that Queen Kalani did, which, while locked away, was a great use of time, she translated, because she was, I told you before, very highly intellectual, and she translated a sacred Hawaiian text, the name of which is Kumulipu. But it's a creation chant. Uh, she transcribed over 16 eras that incorporated the emergence. It kind of sounds like like a Darwin explanation, but it's a myth. And it incorporates the emergence of sea creatures and insects and land plants and animals and eventually gets to humans. 
Well, we'll end the episode today by reading a preface to that chant, um, allowing Queen Lilio Kalani to speak directly to us. And the chant itself reads like a genealogy and would be difficult to read, but you can look at it online. And her translation is also an important historical document. We ought to put a link to that on her page on our website. So let's read her introduction. And remember, she is writing all of this while she is imprisoned. There are several reasons for the publication of this work, the translation of which pleasantly employed me while imprisoned by the present rulers of Hawaii. It will be to my friends a souvenir of that part of my life, and possibly it may also be of value to genealogists and scientific men of a few societies to which a copy will be forwarded. The folklore traditions of an aboriginal people have of late years been considered of inestimable value. Language itself changes, and there are terms and allusions herein to the natural history of Hawaii which might be forgotten in the future years without some history as this to preserve them to posterity. Further, it is the special property of the latest ruling family of the Hawaiian Islands, being nothing less than the genealogy in remote times of the late Kalakalua, who had it printed in the original Hawaiian language, and myself. This is the very chant which was sung by Puo, the high priest of our ancient worship, to Captain Cook, when they whom they surnamed Lono, one of the four chief gods dwelling high in the heavens, but at times appearing on the earth. This was the cause of the deification of Captain Cook under the name and of the offerings to him made at the temple or Heawa at Hikiawu Kealkalua, where this song was rendered. Captain Cook's appearance was regarded by our people then as a confirmation of their own traditions, for it was prophesied by priests at the time of the death uh, that he, Lona, would return anew from the sea in a Spanish man of war or Awalaua to the navigator that accordingly gave a welcome with the name of Lono. She does go on to list the genealogy of the monarchy, and she's going to make a lot of historical connections that consist of a lot of names. As you can see, I'm not very good at pronouncing, (laughs) but I want to pick up at the end of her final words. It will be seen, therefore, that as connecting the earlier kings of ancient history with the monarchs latest upon the throne, this chant is a contribution to the history of the Hawaiian Islands. And as it is the only record of its kind in existence, it seemed to me worthy of preservation in convenient form. I have endeavored to give the definition of each name as far as it came within my knowledge of words, but in some cases that could not be done because of the true significance has been lost. The ancient Hawaiians were astronomers, and the terms used appertain to the heavens, the stars, terrestrial science, and the gods. Curious students will notice in this chant analogies between its account of the creation and that given by modern science or sacred scripture. As with other religions, our ancient people recognized an all-powerful evil spirit, Maya, was the king of Milu, as Satan is of the infernal regions or hell. I hope that to some interested in all that pertains to Hawaii, this may give one half the pleasure which it gave to me in the translation and preparation of the manuscript. And that is our hope with this podcast as well. We hope we've introduced you to just a small part of the long and complex story of a wonderful people, the Hawaiian people, a people that greet and send off everyone they meet with aloha, uh, a way of life where you share your essence of love and your friendship at every coming and going. And Oh, and if you recognize the song that we're playing at the beginning, at the end, it was written by Queen Lilia Kalani herself. 
And even Elvis Presley has recorded it. So <laughs> He loved Hawaii. Yes, he did. That, it made him famous. <laughs> it did. So thanks for being with us today. And uh, please follow us on all of our social media. And please check out our webpage at howtolovebitpodcast.com. And text an episode to a friend. Invite them to the literature party. Aloha. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.